welcome to the Turkish History Podcast, Episode 3, United We Stand. So last time, we focused on the great conquests in the West by Ishtami, the destruction of the Hephthalites and the Turkish expansion across the steppe as far as the Ukraine and the Black Sea. Ishtami concluded his treaty with Rome and was on the verge of invading Iran before his death. But at the same time that Ishtami was beginning his conquests in the West, Mukan Khan, his nephew, the Ilig Khan to whom Ishtami owed his allegiance as Yabgu, was the overlord in the East. And Mukan wasn't just sitting on his hands while his uncle conquered the West. Remember that at this stage, the East was the real prize. The Turks came from a Chinese-centered political universe. China, not Iran, was the rich, settled civilization they grew up around. While they were steeped in Sogdian culture, it was China that loomed large for them, the civilization around which all of East Asia rotated. When we last left the Chinese, they were mired in the so-called Northern and Southern Dynasties period. Again, I highly recommend the History of China podcast if you actually want to learn about Chinese history. As we discussed, the series of northern dynasties such as the Northern Wei, the Western Eastern Wei, and the Northern Zhao and the Northern Qi were founded by Cenocized steppe people. Not even cooked barbarians, sort of overcooked barbarians, well-done barbarians. In many cases, the military elite were Jianbei, descendants of the Mongol confederation that had preceded the Ruran Khanate, who had settled in northern China. However, by the time of Bumin's death in 552, China was on the verge of unification and stability, and on the verge of return to ethnic Han Chinese rule. In 550, Gao Yang, a son of a prominent Jianbei general of the Eastern Wei, forced the emperor of the Eastern Wei to abdicate the throne to his family and established the Northern Qi dynasty, declaring himself to be the Emperor Wen Zhuan. Separately, as we will cover shortly, in 557, the Zhanbei generals of the Western Wei did basically the exact same thing and founded the Northern Zhao. In the southeast, the more or less totally ethnic Han Chen dynasty was established in 557. So these two Cenocized barbarian dynasties and the new totally Chinese dynasty in the south were just establishing themselves. But within 40 years, they would be gone they would be united by the ethnically Han and short-lived Sui dynasty, which itself would fall to the not-so-Han and very long-lived Tang dynasty within another 40 years. So this was the twilight of the northern and southern dynasties, and the twilight of steppe power in China proper, for now. But into this twilight strode Mukan Khan. After defeating the Wuran in a final battle in 554, the Wuran Khanate was done. But this wasn't just the end of the Ruran. While they would never again be the lords of the steppe, the remnants of the Ruran became tools of the Chinese dynasties. These remnants fled to the northern Zhao and the northern Qi. These courts would keep the rival princes of the Ruran in their back pockets to sort of use against the Turks. These sheltered Ruran princes were essentially just members of the ruling clan, those who knew that Mukan and the Turks would never accept their submission. So Mukan turned his eye towards China. He was keen to use the division between these dynasties to pit them off each other to expand and deepen Turkish influence and power in China. And he sort of did this through the traditional step methods we've seen previously. He engaged in gift-giving, sought out marriage alliances, and also continued nomadic raiding into northern China, 
The Chinese states also acted as they had in the past with other steppe confederations. They tried to play the nomads off each other and use their internal fractiousness to their advantage. They were not just going to lay down and accept raiding by this new powerful Turkic state. And they had members of the old ruling family of the steppe in their pockets to use as a tool if required. In 554, the last emperor of the Western Way, having taken some of the remnants of the Ruran into his court, personally rode out to meet a Turkish assault led by Mukan. This was probably an attempt by Mukan to just finish off the Ruran once and for all, and to assert his power over the collapsing Western Way. But it was unsuccessful. The Western Way, led by their Jianbei Generalissimo Yuan Tai, defeated the Turks in battle. But this was not a total defeat. The Western Way had just stopped the Turkish attack. They had not destroyed the army or captured the Khan. The Ruran remnants, led by Anagui's cousin Yuzhulu, which I'm sure I'm getting wrong because also I don't speak Mongolian, were then set up within the borders of the Western Way as sort of a Khanate in exile, somewhere in modern-day Shanxi province. Of course, this was deeply provocative to Mukan Khan and to the Turks. Remember that the biggest threat to steppe confederations is always their division. It was the sedentary states using their internal fractiousness and decentralization against them. And that's what this Khanate in exile was meant to do to be a potential pole of division, someone for disunited tribes to rally around who could then be used and set forth as the quote-unquote rightful ruler of the steppe, all of which would be under Chinese influence, of course. But Mukan was also able to play the diplomatic game. He invaded the Western Way again in 555 with a large horde, all while playing the Chinese states off each other. He basically told the Way, hey look, I've got nothing against you. It's that Ruran so-called Khan that I'm after. So he didn't go for the Western Way capital. He basically made himself a nuisance in the countryside, reminding them how easy it would be to make him go away and make all of this stop. Which eventually they did. In 555, under pressure from the Turks, the last emperor of the Western Way delivered the Ruran Khan in chains to Mukan. The Ruran were finished. But so were the Western Way. In 556, that Jeanbe Generalissimo Yuan Tai died following which his son Yuanzhu overthrew the Western Wei dynasty and established the Jianbei-led Northern Zhao dynasty in 557. The growing power of the Turks spooked these new northern dynasties. In Mukan's reign, almost 510 kilometers of the Great Wall were repaired and expanded by over 1.8 million workers in an attempt to keep the Turks out of northern China. But as always, these walls were not really entirely effective. While Mukan had finally, absolutely, and completely defeated the Ruran, he had not yet completed his domination of the steppe. The Turks had finished off the leadership of the old Khanate, but they had not yet united the rest of the steppe itself in the east. But slowly, starting in the 550s, Mukan began to consolidate the Turkic control of the steppe world, moving into and then replacing the Ruran Khanate's territories. I don't think that we should think of this as a complete destruction of the Ruran state, but more like its takeover by new management. Remember, the Turks were very familiar with the apparatus of the Ruran Khanate. They had been a subject tribe, but they had a front row seat to see how the whole thing worked. And while they were maybe opposed to the Sinicization attempt by Vanagui, they were not about to throw out the centralizing institutions that he had created and improved. 
We're going to discuss the details of the state's organization later in this episode, but for now I think we should imagine Mukan appointing his officers and officials and organizing a Roran-style court for himself, but one more influenced by Sogdian culture. In essence, this khanate took the Chinese forms of government established by the Roran and the Chinese border states and grafted a Sogdian court culture onto them while maintaining the Turkish language and steppe culture, sort of like a stool with three legs. Mukan then sent emissaries out across the steppe, to those tribes that had attended the cruel tie appointing him and to those who had not, demanding their submission and asserting his authority. The biggest obstacles to this were the Kitan, who appear to have been basically the lone holdouts against Turkish rule in the east. The Kitan were an eastern Mongol confederation, though like all nomadic steppe tribal confederations, we should not picture them as being monoethnic or monolinguistic. But they had nowhere near the level of organization and centralization of the Turks. In Chinese terms, they were basically raw barbarians. We know that the Kitan suffered a heavy defeat at the hands of the northern Qi in 553, one year before the western Wei defeat of the Turks. In the aftermath of his capture and defeat of the last Huron Khan, Mukan appears to have had some success in defeating and subjugating the Kitan, though Kitan revolts would continue to bubble up until about 586. Though by and large, by the late 550s and early 560s, the Kitan were largely subdued. By the early 560s, Mukan at last felt secure enough on the steppe to try to take advantage of the weaknesses of the Northern Qi, those Zhanbei successors to the Eastern Wei. The northern Qi seemed to have been going through a bit of a tumultuous succession crisis. In 559, their founding emperor, the emperor Wenjuan, died. According to the Chinese sources, his later years had been marked by heavy drinking and cruelty. Basically, he was a bit of a mean drunk. After his death, his sons and brothers squabbled over the throne, replacing each other in succession as emperor. Mukan sought to take advantage of this chaos. He entered into an alliance with the northern Zhao. Like the alliance in the west between Ishtami and the Sassanids roughly three years earlier, this involved a marriage alliance with a sedentary ruler taking a step-bride. Mukan sent his daughter to marry the Emperor Wu of the Northern Zhao. Ten years after Mukan's initial defeat by the Northern Qi, the Turks and the Northern Zhao assembled their forces and invaded the territories of the Northern Qi. Unlike the Turkish alliance with the Sassanids against the Heftalites, this appears to have actually been a two-front war. The Turks attacking from the north, with a detachment of northern Zhao forces, and the northern Zhao attacking alone from the south. The emperor at the time, Wu Cheng, raced to combat the Turkish advance from the north, but when he saw the strength of the Turkish forces, he despaired. He considered fleeing, but ultimately decided that he had no choice but to try to resist. Ultimately, the Turks would ravage and occupy part of the northern Qi territory for several years. At this point, Mukan appears to have worried that he was weakening the northern Qi a little bit too much and was becoming too close to the northern Zhao. It seems like he basically tried to start pulling back from the alliance with the Zhao. In 565, when Emperor Wu of the northern Zhao sent an honor guard to collect his promised Turkish bride, Mukan broke the treaty and detained the embassy. But then a great storm several years later ravaged his capital, and convinced him that he had angered the gods by breaking his word. So he changed his mind again and sent his daughter to marry the emperor of the northern Zhao in 568. Mukan would die several years later in 572, roughly three years before his uncle Ishtami would die in the west. At his death, he was the Ilig Khan, ruler of one of the largest states the world had ever seen. His authority, at least nominally, stretched from the borders of the Ukraine and the Black Sea in the west 
to the forests of Manchuria and the Pacific Ocean in the east. It encompassed the great Silk Road cities of Sogdiana and the cities of Inner Asia. It bordered the great civilizations of China, Persia, and Byzantium. Mukan was succeeded by his younger brother Taspar in 572. Ishtami at this time was still Yabgu in the west, but was a very old man. As we will discuss next time, Ishtami would be succeeded by his son Tardu in 575. But for now we're going to stay in the east, because Taspar's reign in many ways marks the zenith of the first Turkish Khanate. You see, Taspar was the last of this first generation, the brother and sons of the founder Bumin. He was also the last Khan who would be the uncontested ruler of the whole Khanate. Taspar was the son of Bumin and his Chinese wife sent from the Western Wei upon Bumin's victory over the Ruran, Princess Wei Chang Lei. He therefore never knew his father. As we discussed in episode 1, Bumin died within one year of his marriage to Princess Chang Lei. But Taspar would have grown up steeped in both Turkish and Chinese culture. He was a blue blood twice over, son of the great founder Bumin and son of a Chinese princess. Taspar began his reign by turning against the northern Zhao and toward the northern Xi. Definitely, this was part of the step game of turning Chinese states against each other, but I think there was also probably some bitterness that Taspar must have felt, given that the northern Zhao had come to power by overthrowing his mother's family. In 572, the very year he came to power, Taspar Khan gave refuge to a defeated northern Xi prince Gao Xiaoyu, after the northern Zhao came close to achieving a total conquest of the northern Qi. Indeed, Taspar seems to have been considering running over all of northern China, and essentially had to be bought off by both the northern Qi and the northern Zhao. Chinese sources say he was given 100,000 pieces of silk by the Zhao as tribute to stop him, and that the northern Qi emptied their treasury to pay tribute to him. In the late 570s, he went so far as to call the two emperors of the northern Zhao and the northern Qi his sons. The Book of Zhao says, quote, He, Taspar, said to his followers, But let me be filial to my two sons in the south, and there is no evil in me. So Taspar had really expanded his power and influence over the northern Chinese dynasties. However, the northern Qi were really on the ropes, and by 577, shortly after Taspar Khan sheltered Gao Xiaoyu, the northern Zhao finally completed their conquest of the northern Qi. But this victory by the northern Zhao over the northern Qi didn't stop Taspar Khan. The Book of Zhao, for example, mentions all sorts of campaigns against the Turks, and also that the Turkish state had become richer and stronger since Mukan's death. This was all part of the traditional pattern for steppe peoples in China, though. Conflict mixed with diplomacy. In 579, the emperor of the northern Zhao sent his daughter, Qianjin, as the bride to Taspar Khan, and in exchange, Taspar turned over the northern Qi claimant he had been keeping in his back pocket. So this was basically the inverse of the deal between Mukan and the last emperor of the Western Wei decades earlier, when Mukan finally got his hands on the last Ruran Khan. Taspar's reign saw the decline of Sogdian culture in the Eastern Khanate. This really isn't that surprising given that his mother was Chinese. Instead, Chinese culture expanded under his rule. In particular, he became a proponent of Buddhism, which had also been promoted by the Western Wei ancestors on his mother's side, and was enjoying a flourishing in China. But Buddhism also became popular among the elites in the western part of the Khanate at this time as well. In the east, Taspar commissioned Chinese-style pagodas and monasteries, and welcomed Buddhist monks to spread the faith. This is in stark contrast to the persecution of Buddhists by the northern Zhao. We know that Turkish merchants and emissaries traveled freely in China, bringing with them the goods of the Silk Road and no doubt acting as cultural ambassadors in both directions. 
bringing Turkish culture to China, and bringing back Chinese culture to the heartlands of the Khanate. Ultimately, Taspar died in 581, and with him died the United Khanate. The succession crisis that erupted on his death would ultimately lead to the permanent division of the Khanate. Taspar was not only the last Khan of a United Khanate, but the last Khan of what I would call the first generation of rulers of the Turkish Khanate. It was these men, this first generation, so to speak, Mukan and Taspar in the east and Ishtami Yabgu in the west, who essentially built the Gökturk state. When Buman had died in 553, he was only one year into being the Ilig Khan, one year since defeating the Ruran Anagui. And he was the first. There was no long-standing record of rule or legitimacy for his successors to fall back on. In any event, that sort of legitimacy with structured lines of succession, the type of legitimacy and structure that, for example, allows a child to become a king, didn't really exist on the steppe, where charisma and strength ruled. Might made right on the grasslands. So when Mukan and Ishtami took over, the Turkic Khanate was really in a very precarious position. It wasn't even really a state yet, it was an aspirational state, a Khanate in name only. It's really telling, for example, that the Western Way tried to keep a Ruran Khan in their back pocket. It tells us that the rule of the Turks was so shallow, so unentrenched, that it was very conceivable that they could be replaced by the cousin of the defeated. So it was really Ishtami and Mukan, not Bumin, who built the Khanate, who created a state that was capable of enduring and then expanded it across the grasslands east and west. And it was Taspar in the east, the son of Bumin, who took this expanded state to the height of its power and influence. So before we jump into the succession crisis to this first generation, the builders of the empire, let's step back and look at the big picture, the state that they had created and the empire that it ruled. This is really quite a change in fortune for the Ashina clan, from being considered below marrying a Ruran princess in 552, to being related by marriage to both the Sassanid emperor in Persia and the emperor of the western Zhao in China in 568, from being, quote, lowly blacksmith slaves in the eyes of the Ruran, to calling the emperors of China your sons in about 30 years. I mean, that's a meteoric ascent. It's also striking how much the Chinese and the Sassanid emperors wanted Turkish brides. It speaks volumes about the power of the state that the Ashina clan had managed to build so quickly. So what was the structure of this state? As we've discussed for the Turks and other tribal confederations, this was a multi-ethnic tribal state. A lot of the structures were taken from the Chinese and the Ruran, but expanded and adapted, and melded with this Sogdian language and culture. At the very top was the Ashina clan. Underneath this clan were the other Turkic clans of the tribe, with varying degrees of relationship to the ruling Ashina. In the east, for example, we know of the Ashide clan, who often provided wives to the ruling Ashina clan. And, very importantly for our story, in the Western Khanate, two factions of clans would emerge, the five Dolu clans and the five Nushibi clans, collectively called the Onok, or the Ten Arrows. These clans were bitter rivals, and sat just below the Ashina clan in the west. We know that these two Western factions likely emerged at some point toward the end of Ishtami's reign, but their origin and the origin of their rivalry remain shrouded in mystery. Some scholars think they might have been military organizations that then turned into clans. All of these elite clans functioned along a bipartite division of power within each khanate, or within each side of the khanate, that is east and west. 
Both western and eastern khanates had a left and a right wing, which was a traditional division in the steppe world. Now, these are not the political left and right wing political factions in the way that you and I would use the terms. Our left wing and right wing political factions actually take their name from the French Revolution based on which sides of the hall in the National Assembly the liberal and conservative revolutionary sat on. Instead, the steppe left and right wings take their name from military formations and cardinal directions. Certain clans were theoretically in charge of one wing or the other wing of the army when lined up for battle, and one part or the other part of the geography of their lands. In the western half of the Khanate, for example, the Nushibi were the right wing or the western wing, and the Dulo were the left wing or the eastern wing. Just outside of this inner core were the tribes who had joined voluntarily, those who had answered Bumin's call to revolt against the Ruran, probably chief among them. Others would have joined up as the Khanate expanded. Below these would be the subject tribes and the subject sedentary peoples, who paid taxes and tribute up the chain to the top. Sort of like the mafia, where everyone takes a cut on, as the money goes up. Subject tribes and newly joined tribes were always served on the vanguard of battles. They were the cannon fodder, or I guess the arrow fodder, as the case may be here. One of the key features of this state was something we've discussed ad nauseum the twin power of the Khan and the Yabgu. As we discussed, the Yabgu had independent legitimacy, independent power, but was a vassal of the Khan. He administered his domains and the tribes subject to him, but owed ultimate loyalty to the Khan. And it's going to be ultimately along this line that the Khanate will fracture in the coming civil war. The rule of the Khan and the Yabgu was considered to be mandated by heaven. The Bilge Khan inscriptions, carved centuries later by the Second Turkish Khanate, say, quote, Heaven like Turk, wise Khan, because heaven so mandated and because I possess the heavenly good fortune, I became Khan. End quote. So you don't get much more divine right than that. We also sort of see this in how Ishtami as Yabgu greeted the Roman ambassadors. They had to be ritually purified before being brought into his presence. Again, this is underlying his sort of semi divinity. Now, this idea clearly came from the Chinese concept of the mandate of heaven, but it was repurposed to come from Tengri, the sky god, and it was in fact extended beyond the Chinese concept. It's not just the divine right to rule, but sort of a divine essence. This might show influence of Iranian culture from Central Asia. In Iranian political thought, there is the concept of the far, the holy light surrounding and emanating from the Shah, which shows him to be a divinely guided figure with a divine right to rule almost divine in his own right. But the Turks took this even a step further, with this semi-divinity running through the veins of the whole Ashina clan. As such, their blood could not be shed, and they were only killed by strangulation. This would remain a feature of Turkish political thought for a long time. The Mongols would famously pick it up, and they would just beat royals to death in a carpet, so they wouldn't have to spill their blood. And in time, even the Ottomans will come to execute members of the royal family by strangulation with a bowstring. To not spill their blood. This idea of the whole ruling clan not just as being on top of the political system, but as literally semi-divine, probably came into the Turkish world with the Ashina. Just as, you know, how in the Roman Empire, Diocletian cemented the crumbling imperial authority during the crisis of the third century by elevating the imperial office from being just first citizen to being a divine right monarch, so too did the Ashina cement their shaky status after their rapid rise to power with claims to semi-divinity. We can see this in the increasing ceremonialization of the Khan's high office, 
there was sort of this elaborate ceremony for the elevation of the Khan to his office, which included the Khan being held aloft to the sun on a felt blanket and being ritually strangled in silk. This ceremonialization and royal propaganda was designed to elevate the Ashina clan, to wrap them in the mandate of heaven and imbue them with the far. Connected to this semi-divinity, the Turkish Khan had more far-reaching powers than the Ruran Khan had had, particularly in the ability to make laws, to create and uphold the Yasa, which means the overarching law of the steppe empire. The Ruran Khanate did not seem to conceive of the Khan as a lawmaker. Perhaps only Anagui thought of himself this way, and he was the most centralizing Ruran Khan. But as part of their powers, Turkish Khans had the right to make the laws that would govern all of the tribes of the confederation, that is, to make the Yasa. We can see this in the Orkhan inscriptions, which say, quote, Having become masters of the Turk people, they, Ishtami and Bumin, established and ruled its empire, and fixed the laws of the country. They were wise Khans, they were valiant Khans. All their officers were wise and valiant. All their nobles, as well as the common people, were just, end quote. Now, leaving aside the hyperbole, like clearly everyone wasn't valiant, this reference to fixing the laws and appointing the officials is telling. And it shows the expanded legal and administrative powers of the Khan and the Yabgu in this new state. The Khan and the Yabgu also had expanded judicial powers, that is, the right to hear and decide disputes, but bear in mind that that doesn't mean that the traditional tribal authorities lost all of their power or administrative or judicial functions underneath the Khan. The Khan also seems to have become at least semi-nomadic within the area around the mountains of Otukan. This is in modern-day Mongolia. And this area sort of became something like a semi-permanent capital, though it wasn't really a true capital city. Otukan was a holy mountain, again marking the Khan's role as semi-divine. The Book of Zhao says, quote, Although the Turks are constantly changing their abode, they each nonetheless possess their own land. The Khan lives constantly in the Otukan mountain. His royal tent faces towards the east because one honors the direction from which the sun rises. End quote. The holy mountain of Otukan became deeply tied to the Khan's political power. The Kultigin inscription erected during the Second Khanate says, Quote, if the Turkish Khan rules from the Otukan mountain, there will be no trouble in the realm. The place from which the tribes can best be controlled is the Otukan mountains. If you stay at the Otukan mountain, you will stay forever dominating the tribes. End quote. And we see here the melding of the political and the spiritual. The political goal of the Khan is to control and dominate the tribes, and it is the mandate of heaven and the relationship to the holy mountain that will let him do that. Probably most importantly, Below the Khan and the Yabgu, the Turkish Khanate had far more offices of the central administration than prior steppe empires. The central administration included both the officials of the court itself and officials sent out among the tribes and cities of the nomadic imperium. The court advisors to the Khan or the Yabgu maintained the treasury, handled tribute and taxation, correspondence with foreign courts, they ran court ceremonies and religious officials, and they oversaw the Khan or the Yabgu's personal troops. These court officials were sometimes led by an official approximating a grand vizier or a prime minister, usually given the title Tarkhan. The court officials also included the elite bodyguard of the Khan or the Yabgu themselves. According to the Chinese, these were called the wolves. And that's kind of interesting. You see here the enduring myth of the Ergenikon legend and the special connection to the wolf among the Turks. 
These elite bodyguards were probably mostly drawn from the clans closely related to the Ashina, sort of the inner core. And this again seems to be something of an innovation. Though no doubt other steppe leaders had such a group, the Turks seem to have systematized and ritualized the institution to a far greater degree. The other court officials were probably also heavily drawn from these inner core tribes, along with useful people from the sedentary societies, mostly Sogdians and Chinese. The framework for this comes from the Ruron, the Northern Wei, and the other northern dynasties in China, but brought onto the steppe. It's the traditional steppe military apparatus combined with Chinese-style bureaucracy. Except here, the sedentary people's bureaucracy was not inherited by the nomads, but imported. The biggest innovation of the Turkish Khanate's central administration, though, was probably its expansion out of the court of the Khan and into the tribes of the confederation. Previous steppe empires might have had a centralized court with a lot of power when dealing with outside sedentary states. You know, think of Anagui sitting in his new capital with his Chinese advisors. But the tribal confederation outside of the court and the ruling clan was basically untouched. Extreme federalism internally, with the leader and his crew having great power mediating relationships externally. The Turks started to change this. Now, that's not to say they took over the tribes and got rid of traditional steppe life. I mean, that would have been impossible. Instead, they sent officials from the central administration to the tribes outside of the inner core, which is sort of a novel institution on the steppe. I sort of think of these new officials as something like the political commissars of the USSR. They didn't directly administer the tribes they were sent to, but they sort of stood over the shoulders of the leaders who did, making sure that they weren't doing anything contrary to the Khan's orders. I think they probably arose out of the emissaries from the Khan, but then emissaries who didn't just leave after delivering their message. They just sort of hung around, watching. In some cases, it seems they did take over the management of the tribe itself, if required, but it seems like this was really rare. Additionally, the Turkish Khanate's central administration sent out the most hated type of official, tax collectors. Called Tudun, these officials would ride out to the subject tribes and to the subject cities and tell them to pony up. Now, this was a true innovation on the steppe. Tax collectors had, of course, been common in the settled world for centuries at this point, but prior steppe confederations just had not used them. Instead, they relied on tribute obligations coupled with the threat of violence if you didn't pay up or if you skimmed too much off the top. Though we don't know how taxes were calculated or allocated, the fact that there were actual officials sent from the center to collect taxes shows just what a centralized and sophisticated operation the Turks were running here. Above these officials, the princes of the Ashina clan would be sent out to be sub-governors under the Khan or the Yabgu over the tribes of a certain geographic region. This was another Turkish innovation on the steppe, and a key feature in the centralization of the Turkish state. The title typically given was Shad, or governor. A Shad would act below the Yabgu or the Khan to govern the tribes of a particular geographic area that he had been assigned. The Shads would also act as intermediaries between the tribes of the confederation outside of the inner core and the Khan. This also served the function of further emphasizing the semi-divinity and the superiority of the Khan. Like, you can't even talk to the Khan or the Yabgu directly. That's how divine they are. You gotta go through their cousin. And it sort of emphasized the specialness of the Ashina clan itself. As the key link between the center and the regions, between the ruling clans and the tribes that were ruled, the Shads had enormous political power. The Khans and the Yabgus of the Khanate were very conscious of this power, so it was critical that the Shads be absolutely loyal. 
This is one main reason why only members of the Ashina clan would ever be appointed as Shads. In time, of course, the Shads would go on to be the main leaders of revolts against the central administration. They had both the Ashina name and immediate proximity to the steppe tribes ruled by the Khanate. And if those tribes became dissatisfied, an ambitious Shad could try to harness that anger, turn it against the center, and take over the top job. In general, the number of offices and titles just truly exploded in usage under the Turkish Khanate. There were a ton of them. Shad, Tegin, Irkin, Tarkan, Sadpit, Tudun, Kor, and Beg, which would later turn into Bey, the most common Turkish title and one still used in Turkey today. That's where that word comes from. It comes from this Khanate. The title Khan itself would also be used below the Ilid Khan. The Yabgu would use it, of course, but so would the other officials, including the so-called Akkans, who had some sort of spiritual or shamanic function. Some of these titles were likely hereditary among the aristocracy, but some were also appointed by the Khan. Unfortunately, we don't know what they all signified or what all of their responsibilities were, and there's probably a lot of overlap here. For his part, Taspar Khan also appointed sub-Khans under him in the east. This habit of giving particularly important family members the title of Khan would continue after him. Most important for our story, Taspar appointed Ishbara Khan, his nephew, to serve as an eastern sub-Khan, and appointed another nephew, Boru, as sub-Khan in the western part of the eastern Khanate. Below the nobility and those with titles and ranks were the Karabodun, a term of the Turks to refer to the common people. These were the untitled, common nomadic peoples of the tribes ruled by the Khanate. Interestingly, the Turkish Khanate at first appears to have seen the Karabodun as a separate group than the Turks. That is, only the nobility were considered Turks, the common people who spoke the same language were just the common people. This seems to imply that the term Turk might have started off not as an ethnic label, but as a class label or a political label that only in time became an ethnonym. Aside from the Khan and his officials, the other great institution was the Kurultai. We've discussed the Kurultai before. That's the great assembly of nobles and tribal chiefs that confirmed Bumin Khan. There's a lot of people who try to see the Kurultai as sort of a proto-parliament, but its authority was really much more limited than that. This was not a legislature. The main role of a Kurultai was not to legislate or to make laws. It was to come together to confirm and appoint the next Khan. Now, always, this Khan would come from the ruling clan, the Ashina. But as we've discussed, any Ashina clan member could claim the title Khan. The Kurultai would therefore provide a stamp of legitimacy that a claimant could rely on, but it wasn't super formalized, and it wasn't always necessary. Not every Khan was appointed by a Kurultai. And maybe you could lose in the Kurultai, and then win on the field of battle and become Khan anyway. It's also likely that smaller assemblies of nobles and tribal chiefs would be called during a Khan's reign to advise the Khan and maybe to confirm particularly important decisions, like going to war and making a treaty. Another big difference with modern legislatures is that the Kurultai didn't really have a majority vote or super-formalized parliamentary procedures. These were deliberative and consultative bodies. They worked on consensus. That said, it was clearly the most democratic institution in the state structure. Just like all preceding nomadic steppe empires, and for that matter basically all steppe empires going forward, the Turkic Khanate was multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural. At its core was the Turk tribe led by the Ashina clan and its relatives, but they ruled over a dazzling array of people, both settled and nomadic. The Orkhan inscriptions give us a solid list of these people, but it's far too many to go over, so I'm just going to cover some of the major ones. First, the Tele 
We've discussed these people before. They were an Onoric Turkic people who had formed part of the Jean Bay and Roran Khan confederations. Ultimately, they were conquered by Bumin, but they would remain an uneasy subject of the Turkish Khanate, always waiting for a chance to revolt. And they would revolt, multiple times and to great and devastating effect. Secondly, the Karluk. They were speakers of a language that would eventually become the Karluk family of Turkic languages, most importantly Uzbek and Uyghur. At this time, it seems like it was a tribal confederation of three tribes, led by a tribal leader called an Etber. The Karluk would play a major role in the fall of the second Turkish Khanate. Thirdly, the Kyrgyz, a union of tribes, probably Turkic but at least led by a Turkic core. They were governed by a Khan, one of the very few non-Ashina who were allowed to use the title. They mostly lived around the Yenisei River. Fourth, the Khitan. As we discussed, these were Mongol peoples who lived in modern-day Manchuria, and they would prove to be a thorn in the side of the Khanate until the end. Fifth, the Tatars. The Tatars were the people who would come to dominate the Russian steppes and form the basis of the Golden Horde in the years to come, centuries to come even. They consolidated as a tribal confederation of 30 clans under the Gokturk, and they mostly lived around Lake Baikal at this time. They would eventually move west and incorporate other tribes and other steppe and Siberian forest peoples into their confederation. Sixth, the Sogdians. We've discussed the Sogdians at length already the peoples of the Silk Road cities who spoke an ironic language. But they were so much more to the early Turkish Khanate. As we've discussed, the Turks wrote in Sogdian, used Sogdian as a prestige language, had Sogdian high court officials, even ambassadors. They had even adopted Sogdian religions among themselves. I think Sogdian culture was really a huge part of what kept the Turks from falling deep into Chinese cultural influences like all the other steppe peoples in the East eventually did. Chinese culture is almost like a star just a huge gravitational sink around which the entire solar system of East Asia rotated. But in the West, the Sogdians acted like a separate gravitational pull that the Turks would be gravitated towards, and which ultimately would pull them into the Iranian world. The reigns of Mukhan and Ishtami would turn out to mark a high point for Sogdian culture in the Khanate, however, because the Khanate would become increasingly and self-consciously Turkish, and in the East it would eventually become increasingly under Chinese cultural influence. And finally, one last people deserve a special mention for this podcast. The Ohuz Turks. Ohuz simply means tribe, and there are references to the Uch Ohuz, meaning the three tribes, or the Tokuz Ohuz, meaning the nine tribes, we will discuss in more detail later on. But among the tribal confederations who bore the name Ohuz were the speakers of a dialect of Turkish whose descendants, in time, would include a man named Seljuk. And these people would eventually come to settle on the high plateau of Anatolia. But we'll get to that later. Much, much later at the rate that I'm going. It was under the rule of the Turkish Khanate that the Turkification of the steppe began. And this is going to end up being one of the real lasting legacies of the Khanate. In the first episode, I noted that the Eurasian steppes were home to just a bewildering array of peoples. Avars, Alans, Scythians, Mongols, Tocharians, and so on. But what is striking today is that most of the people of the steppes between Mongolia and Ukraine are Turkic speakers. And not just Turkic speakers, but speakers of non-Oluric Turkic languages. Sure, the Mongols held out in the east, and you know there's a pocket of them in Kalmykia, and there's pockets of Avars and Alans and others who have managed to cling on in the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains, There's even a pocket of Iranic speakers in far western China, but everyone else on the steppe became Turkified in the end. 
Now, this didn't really happen in the cities of the steppe world, Bukhara, Samarkand, and the like, where Iranic languages are still spoken today. In Samarkand, when I went there, I think most people were native Tajik speakers. But on the steppes themselves, dialects of Turkish would come to completely dominate. And this Turkification of the steppe world would endure, and it would outlast even other steppe conquerors. When the Mongols sweep west, they will ultimately become speakers of Turkic languages, and not the other way around. This process, Turkification, will become increasingly important to our story when we finally get to Anatolia. So it's useful to understand how it worked on the steppes. We should not think of this as the Turks just driving everyone out or forcing them at sword point to speak their language. Instead, it was a slow process taking place over time. Most likely what happened is that common Turkish sort of became a prestige language, rising up alongside Sogdian and Chinese, and perhaps some people started speaking it as a common language or their own home language. It's important to note that at this time, all non-Uruk Turkic dialects were largely mutually intelligible. They formed what the Germans would call a Sprachbund, meaning a language continuum. So the tribe next door might speak a slightly different dialect, but you could still understand them. However, like a game of telephone, each tribe down the line spoke a slightly different dialect, and ultimately, speakers at each end couldn't understand each other, or had a hard time understanding each other. So these Turkish dialects likely rose in prestige, becoming the lingua franca of the steppe, and then virtually its sole languages. These dialects would then continue to diverge, in time breaking into the modern Turkic languages that we know today. As we discussed earlier, Mukan's reign was sort of the high point of Sogdian culture in the continent. Sogdian was used for record-keeping and diplomacy. It was found on inscriptions and was doubtless spoken by members of the court. The Book of Zhao says, The script of the Turks resembles that of the Hu barbarians, by which they mean Sogdians. Ironic religions from the Central Asian Sogdian city-states like Manichaeanism were also widespread and existed alongside Tengriism and Buddhism. It also seems that Nestorian Christianity, widespread in Iran, made some headroads and inroads into the steppe world in this period. But things were changing, and Sogdian culture was losing its pride of place. A big part of this was the emergence of a more self-consciously Turkish culture. It seems that it was around this time, the end of Ishtami's reign or maybe during the reign of Taspar, that the Turks began writing in a new script, the famous Orkhan runes. Now this is quite a jump for a steppe people. Remember, the Chinese had claimed that the Ruran couldn't write at all, and used sheep droppings to count their troop numbers. And now here the Turks are, not only writing, but inventing their own alphabet. This new alphabet was derived from the Sogdian alphabet, but was made to fit Turkish, and to be carved into stone, not written on paper. It was developed somewhere in the west of the Khanate, and then carried east, where it would eventually be used to carve the monumental stone inscriptions during the coming second Khanate. These huge stone inscriptions are often seen as synonymous with the Turkish Khanate today but they were actually produced by its successor, the second Khanate, almost 200 years after the reign of Tosbar. Nevertheless, it is almost certain that the Turkish script developed during this time period. As a runic script, it was designed to be carved, and perhaps Bilge Khan took the practice of carving runic inscriptions in stone from the first Khanate, and there may be other older inscriptions waiting to be found in the mountains and steppes of Mongolia and Kazakhstan. The decline of Sogdian culture also occurred in the realm of religion. Manichaeanism would come to be overshadowed by Buddhism in both East and West, and to a lesser extent by Zoroastrianism in the West. Among the common people, it seems to not have made much headway to begin with. Probably it was tied to the prestige Sogdian culture of the elites. 
As Sogdian culture declined in importance, Manichaeanism also declined. There also seems to be a form of ancestor worship. The Bu'ut inscription seems to mention a temple to Bumin Khan. This was part of the deification of the Ashina clan, part of their propaganda of rule. But it also seems to have become somewhat widespread. The Book of Zhao says that, quote, Every year, the Khan leads the nobles to the ancestral cave to offer sacrifices in the middle of the fifth month. They gather on the Tamir River to make offerings to the Lord of Heaven. End quote. Economically, the Turkic Khanate remained dominated by nomadic pastoralism. That was how most people continued to live. But trade in luxury goods and metalworking were increasingly important to the elites of the Khanate. Turkish inscriptions mention silk, gold, and silver. Some of this was surely booty from raids and tribute, but the Turks also served as middlemen, overseers of the Great Silk Road, and they linked China to the world of Iran and to the Roman Empire. Previously, the Silk Road trade had gone through numerous petty kingdoms, statelets, and city-states, but now it was united under a Pax Turkica, a stable bridge between the East and the West. This led to a flowering of trade across Eurasia. Chinese sources mention gifts of ostriches and ostrich eggs from Iraq, given as gifts by the Turkish Khan. In the West, we know from Menander the Guardsman that the Turks brought Chinese silks to Byzantium. And this is just the tip of the iceberg that we can see from the recorded history. There was a vast web of commerce and luxury goods extending across Eurasia in the peace that the Turks brought to the steppe world. But as we discussed a little bit last episode, this period, the late 6th century and the early 7th century, also saw renewed instability and insecurity across Eurasia. While things didn't get quite as bad as they had during the crisis of the 3rd century, settled Eurasian civilizations again entered a period of hardship during this sort of crisis of the mid-6th century. Agathias, a Greek historian writing in 580, said, quote, Nations have been wiped out, cities enslaved, populations uprooted and displaced, so that all of mankind has been involved in the upheaval, end quote. There was a renewed outbreak of the bubonic plague across Eurasia starting in 542, which would then continue in waves for 50 years. Undoubtedly, this was also contributed to by the Turkish continent itself. Central Asia is, even today, a great home for Yersinia pestis, which is the bacteria that causes the plague, and trade across the Silk Road would have spread the disease with the rats and their fleas. These hardships were also made worse by war. As we discussed in this episode, China was gripped by war, except for a period of brief unification brought by the Sui. And as we discussed last time, it was even worse in the West, as the Byzantines and the Sassanids engaged in decades of constant and brutal warfare. In this environment, the peripheral states around these empires, the Arabs, the Avars, the Alans, and most importantly the Turks, grew in strength relative to the settled peoples that they bordered. Theophylax Simokata, a Byzantine historian, referred to Byzantium and Iran as the two great eyes of the world, the two civilized realms ordained by God to oversee and guard against the barbarians. But at this time, the two eyes began to get a bit blind. The rise of the peripheral peoples could not be stopped and from Arabia to Central Asia, these peripheral states came to press on the great classical Eurasian civilizations of Byzantium, Iran, and China. And by far, the strongest and most important of these states, at least for the time being, was the Turkish Khanate. But they were not alone. The Avars, the Alans, and the Arabs all benefited from this situation, 
and all ended up forming powerful states in the late 500s and early 600s. At this time, though, if you were an outsider without knowledge of what's going to happen, who didn't know that in just a few short years, the armies of Islam will stand triumphant across the known world, and you were asked, which of these peripheral states do you think is going to end up overthrowing the Sassanids and the Romans and conquering the world? You'd probably go with the Turks. They were the ones who were really the most powerful at this time. But this peace, this zenith of Turkish power, would not last. So while the Turkish Khanate stood supremely powerful in 581, partially as a result of the weakness of the settled empires that it bordered, it was unable to maintain the unified political control of Central Asia that it had pioneered. And so next time, we will discuss how this so recently founded and united Khanate would come to be split in two, falling into a vicious civil war between East and West. 